Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. It's automatic, continuous, and unlimited backup for your computer files for only $59 a year. You can try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code TWIP and get two bonus months with purchase. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing app for small businesses that saves time and gets you paid faster. Join over 3.5 million FreshBooks users and try the service for free and get 30 days of unlimited use at FreshBooks.com. And be sure to let them know you heard about it on TWIP. This week on TWIP, outrage over bad Olympic portraits, Microsoft reveals the surface, and are you allergic to your camera? Plus, an interview with Mr. Trey Ratcliffe. It's Wednesday, July 11th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson, back on the show after a short hiatus. I had to jump over the pond for a little while, but now I am back in the chair doing the podcast live on Skype with some good friends. Today we're going to be talking about, um, a lot of you, by the way, have sent me comments on this asking for us to cover this on TWIP, and it's about some outrage over some horrendous Olympic photos. Uh, not to guide the witness at all, but uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Microsoft revealing their new tablet, their answer to the iPad. It's called the Surface. Um, we're going to talk about an allergic reaction that some people are having to their Canon cameras. I'm going to leave it at that. Then we'll talk. <laughs> we're not going to go into that. At all. <laughs> and we're going to talk about uh, this is a bunch of other stuff. I won't go down the list. Um, in the middle of the show, we're going to insert an interview that I did just yesterday with Mr. Trey Radcliffe on. We catch up. I catch up with him about his relocation to New Zealand and why he did that, as well as is uh, launching a new training class on discovering the art of photography. So we're going to talk about all that stuff. To talk about that with me today are Mr. Martin Bailey, Mr. Doug K, and Miss Nicole Young. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey. Good. Hey. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it is good to be back, Nicole. Speaking of being back, you just got back from a trip somewhere in middle America. Where were you and what were you doing out there? I went to visit my family in Nebraska. They Most of them live in Lincoln. And I took my boyfriend to meet the family for the first time. Uh-oh. So wow. we, spent, <laughs> we spent the 4th of July holiday out there and spent a lot of time with family and also uh, ran around in the cornfields and tried to take some awesome photos of the scenery and you got some pretty good photos i was watching i was keeping up with you online you got some really nice photos right very successful trip you know because i i grew up in nebraska in lincoln i didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that but i always assumed you know i always thought oh it's boring it's flat there's nothing here of course you know i was a teenager so that's what i thought um and i started getting into photography and and now in the last couple years i've really been getting into landscape photography and i've really wanted to go back and drive around the countryside and just try and create beautiful photos. It's it's not the obvious beauty that you would, you know, like I go down to Portland a lot and there's the Columbia River Gorge and waterfalls and beautiful stuff out there. It's not this obvious 
in-your-face beautiful landscapes. You really have to kind of find and create compositions. So it was a challenge, but I think I got some really good stuff. I'm actually planning on printing a photo I just posted on Google Plus today on my wall about as big as I can print it. So Cool. Is that the one that I saw, the the cornfields with the road running through it? Yeah, it has a little, yeah, like a little tree, cornfields, a road, and then the sky was really pretty that day. Yeah, so. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you, you, as a photographer, you have skills that are portable to any place where there's light, right? So Basically. <laughs> no, cool. but remember, corn is still food. That's that's true. So, so you were still shooting food, Nicole. You can't break away. Look at that. <laughs> All right, that other voice is Mr. Doug K. Hey, Doug, it's been a while. What have you been up to? Uh, I have been leading and participating in lots and lots of photo walks. And I broke down and bought a Sony NEX7 to supplement my Nikon collection. And I've been doing some fairly extensive tests on kit lenses, Nikon lenses with adapters and things like that. So I've been having a lot of fun. Very cool. That's cool. Yeah. Did you, have you posted any of those shots yet? They're on my blog at blogarhythms.com. Very cool. All right. Well, well the test, the, the, the shots aren't that interesting. They're, they're focus charts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'll be interesting to some, some people, right? Okay. Yeah. I hope so. All right. And joining us from Tokyo, Japan, Mr. Martin Bailey. Hey, Martin. I love that. The way you do that uh, Martin Bailey thing there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I told you before we started, I'm happy to record a little audio file for you if you like. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love it. What's Uh, what's going on over there? uh, Been a very busy few weeks. uh, Still building up for the, uh, you know, doing the planning for the Pixels to Pigment tour. But uh, we we did like a a kind of a, a primer on... Well, it was my Tuesday morning, Monday evening for you guys. I uh, I did a webinar with Photo Shelter and X Right. Oh yeah, uh, you were telling me about that. How'd that go? Yeah, it was great. We uh, we we had uh, you know over double the number of spaces people the people registered, and we pretty much topped it out at um, I think it was just over nine hundred or so people joined. So wow. It was it was really good. I I you know I, I know that, they, that well hopefully they are listening, but. You know, quickly thank the guys at Photo Shelter and X Right as well for that. Uh, but and also to anyone that joined, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I enjoyed doing it, and hopefully, uh, it, you know, we'll be able to do more in the future. And I, I've got to say, I was supposed to be listening. I missed it by an hour because I wrote it down wrong. But they do have they do have it online, so if you missed it, you can still watch it. Oh, cool! There's yeah. a replay. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. That's. Uh, I, I'm also going to be putting that in my podcast next week. So. Uh, oh, good. People... Okay, when you put that in, send me the link to that, Martin. We'll we'll, you know, link over to that to your your notes for that episode. Thanks. Well, I'll, I'll send you the link as well over to the photo shelter place because they that's already online. So this okay. will go out. This this will go out before my podcast. So either way. Hey, I'm just trying to give you traffic. You know, <laughs> I don't do know both. anybody at Photo Shelter, but I know you. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll do both. I'll do both. Okay. All right, guys. Well, let's move on. Uh, this first thing we got a, t- a ton of stuff to talk about. I'm going to try to keep the show to a reasonable non-marathon length. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about is this outrage over those bad Olympic photos. Presumably, you've all have clicked on that link. And you have seen what we're talking about here. Mm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it to you first, Mr. K. Uh, I led the witness a little bit in the intro, and I said <laughs> these were horrendous, but they are horrendous. I'm sorry. I mean, what, but tell me what you think. What was your first reaction when you saw these photos? 
Well, my first reaction was before I looked at them and I said, you know, how bad could they be, right? A professional <laughs> photographer. And then you click and, and you said, this well, bad. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not the world's best photographer anyway. So, uh, you know, who am I to judge? But I went and looked at these things and they are really awful. And um, <laughs> I think all the outrage is well deserved. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's they're 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 miserable, and I think the it's important I think for people to read the story of of what happened to this poor guy. I mean, uh, he uh, he worked for a, a, a wire service, and yeah, he got give an us assignment. give us the background on the story so that so people yeah, so know he, so he, what this is about. Yeah, he gets assigned to go shoot the um, Olympic athletes, and he thinks he's going to have some time with them, and he's just doing headshots, and it turns out he's in one of these media. Yeah, cattle calls that they set up in a big ballroom and everybody gets a little eight by ten spot and they get 30 to 60 seconds which each athlete and he shows up with a camera lenses and strobes and the other wire service people or media people show up with you know full kits uh they've got you know big studio strobes they've got lots of backgrounds they have a uh, they've done research they've got props they've got the whole thing yeah and um so um he struggles. He does the best he can, perhaps, and uh, the results are miserable. And his editor uh, doesn't kill him. He puts him out on the wire, and people second point him. of failure, right? Yeah, yeah. So he shoots bad. He first of all, bad planning. You know, bad research, uh, horrible shots. Photo editor lets him go through, and you get what you get. And, and now that we're talking about them on Twip, Nicole. Would you know? See where I stand on this is if if I went into that situation unprepared, I would have just threw my hands up and said, "Well, I can't do this. There's no way." Especially if it were Olympic athletes and something as critical as this, and I was unprepared, and everyone around me was overprepared and had researched and all this stuff. There's no way I'm going to go in there and and just try to James Bond it. I mean, come on. Would you or should or should he have? Did he do the right thing? It's you know it's really hard to say because we don't know every single circumstance that he was uh, you know. Yeah, but knowing it, knowing what we know though, knowing what we know, I don't. I, well, obviously he's not going to say I can't shoot this because he probably was on a, on the job. You know, he probably had to produce. I would have. I mean, it's, it's like a surgeon going in to do <laughs> eye surgery with a with a bone saw. I would have been you like, know, I would <laughs> like, no, you know, I really can't do that today. <laughs> If you look, if you look at this, to give him some credit, this if if you look at this photographer's normal photos, which are news and sports photographs, which are actually I just I did a search when this was all coming out like a week ago, and then I am searching now and I I can't find anything but the bad Olympic photos. But he actually has some really beautiful newsworthy, you know, sports images and news news photographs. They're they're really good. The quality is great. But, you know, it makes me wonder, is he just not a studio photographer? Because they reminded me of someone, you know, they probably reminded me of me when I first started to learn how to shoot in a studio. Me you know? too. That's and what that, I thought. Exactly. Yep. They're almost like the photos that I would never show anyone. You yes. know, like, okay, these suck. Let me kind of work into it. Now, <laughs> now where I am right now, I don't do a ton of studio photography, but I know light enough to be able to make it work. Or, you know, I don't know, take, find some natural light. Mm-hmm. It makes the, just the angles. There was no compression. It's like he used a wide angle lens for everything. Mm-hmm. It was like a you know a, a five by five room or something. You couldn't back up. You know, there's all these little things that makes you wonder: is his experience just a little bit below where it should be for studio? Uh, it's 
they're just, and you know, to everyone listening, please look at these photos and you'll understand <laughs> why, why we are reacting this way. Cause I mean, cause, yeah, cause you're right. It's not, it's, it is, it is the lighting, which is, which is harsh, but it's also the background. I mean, he put the, they're on like this, this white seamless background that looked like it's been through several proms, yeah. you know, and it's just, just torn to shreds. I mean, if he put on like a, a 70 to 200 and backed way up and at least shot tight on some of these, mm-hmm. you wouldn't see everything around the background unless he assumed they were going to go to someone and they were going to, you know, do tons of touch up work and just create a white background where there wasn't any, um, you know, we don't know the whole story, but yeah. based on what we've all seen, they just, you know, they shouldn't have, but the good news is that when I know when I first saw this, the story i thought oh my gosh these are the actual official photos for the olympics mm-hmm. you know I think that's what everyone thought and then as the story kind of unfolded we realized oh okay this is just one of the many photographers who photographed them and it's not like the official ones that are going anywhere so i think that's why they were su- it was such a big deal at first if it had just been you know a bunch of photos and those were some of them that were like well you know they're bad but they're not going to make a big deal out of them because there are other good photos that other photographers took at the same time right right martin you're thrown into this situation put yourself in in joe clamar's shoes you're thrown into this situation um you are unprepared you haven't done research like the other people have because for whatever reasons you don't have the right gear what do you do? You're standing at the front door, and they're like, "Okay, Mr. Bailey, you're up." What do you? What, 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 what do you do? Well, if it was me, I would have had like a a pro photo um, studio in the back of my car anyway, mm. you know, just just in case. Mm. You know, if I was going to a place like that, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but in the situation, in the you know, he's he's called out. He's got thirty seconds to think on his feet. I would have done headshots. I would have done what what Nicole just said, like, back up a little bit, do, do some shallow depth of field headshots. And because that's what he thought he was going for. That's what he'd been tasked with. Um, or, uh, and whether, whether that was a mistake on his part or the people that, that gave him the job, I don't know. But if, he, if that's what he thought he would, he'd got, at least, like, bust, you know, like, from the waist up, something like that, then he probably could have saved the, saved the situation because they've, they've got a relatively clean seamless in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's even got a, a flag, you know, a, a United States flag there, the Stars and Stripes in the back of one of them. And they, they look, uh, I, that might, yeah, that's, the, that's another one of them. Um, but, yeah, they, they look, you know, as though, like Nicole said again, he expected that someone's going to clean them up in Photoshop because, like, there's one down there of, of Julie Zetlin that, and... She's like on the corner of the the frame. There's yeah. a huge gap where the the seamless stops. Yeah. If the way he shot that, it's as though he's expecting someone's going to Photoshop that in for him. Mm. Um, I mean, the fact that the seamless is all creased and horrible as well. It's you know, I, I don't know. It, it kind of I feel for the guy in that you know he was thrown into a situation, um, whether it was his own fault for not planning properly or or for not being given the right instructions. But you know, I mean, these look like. Even some of the shots, you can tell that they haven't even been, the white balance hasn't even been corrected. You've got, right. like, blue light in some areas and different color light across different parts of the area. It's obvious it's where its flash is hitting compared to the, you know, where his flash isn't hitting. And it's just, I don't know, I feel as though he, pretty much any photographer, if they'd have calmed down and hope, and him himself, obviously, he, he's not a bad photographer, uh, just calm down and, and really thought through the situation for a few seconds instead of just storming ahead mm. and trying to get what he could, then 
probably the results would have been better. But this kind of reminds me, like, and you're right. I, I agree with everything you just said. I'm looking at the list of what he had with him. He had two cameras, um, uh, three lenses, a 17 to 35, a 70 to 200, and a 300 mil. Like Nicole was saying, if he had a, just slapped on that 70 to 200, right. Um, and got back a little further through that background out of focus, moved the light a little bit. It could have got, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, but as it stands, it, it kind of looking at these, if he was under pressure, it kind of reminds me of like a, a, a beginning, like if you're a beginning wedding photographer and you shouldn't be at a wedding and you go in there and shoot it and you end up with stuff like this. And now you're in the position of explaining to the bride and groom why their images suck. You know, it's kind of like the 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 nerd fighting the bully, flailing with his eyes closed, hoping he hits something. You know? Yeah, you put anyone in a situation with you know a style, a type of photography they're not familiar with, they're gonna, it's gonna show. Like you know, I do tons of food photography, and a lot of people who let's say a wedding photographer isn't necessarily going to be able to photograph food properly the first time they do it, right. or the second or the third time. You know, you have to continually practice it. So it's possible that he just rarely shoots in the studio and if, if he does he has time to you know set things up and get the light right instead of being rushed really really quickly um, maybe he's very used to natural light you know because like i said i've seen a lot of the photos i've seen of his are all natural light mm-hmm. you know little telephoto images dropping out the background uh, they're very good but it's just it's a different style so yeah and we're that, we're being no, that, we're being i'm sorry go ahead go ahead Doug. That, just said that that editor should never have let those out there's That's no awesome. excuse yeah, for that exactly it's not you know if if you're a wedding photographer, you've got to get the shot. You know, if this wire service had, you know, bad stuff, they they didn't need, you know, they missed it. That's fine. They didn't have it. They don't need to publish them. There's really no excuse for that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to I want to give Mr. Klamar the the opportunity to come on to this week in photo because we're we're speaking with a lot of bullet holes in the story, obviously, mm-hmm. and and. and and doing our own interpolation of what we think is there and what happened. So we should, you know, if he is listening to this or anybody who knows Joe Klamar, um, I want to invite him officially to come on the show either as an interviewee or as one of the co-hosts to talk about this, um, especially in the spirit of being in the season of the Olympics. It'd be great to have his side of the story and just talk about what he had to go through that day and maybe help us learn from his mistakes in in this particular gig so good idea all right let's move on guys uh microsoft has revealed the surface have you guys have you all seen the video the the uh the reveal video (laughs) yeah when unfortunately the surface crashed and they had to switch i was i I mean it was awesome by the way i want to i want to say i'm a fan of the surface i think this thing is cool i like what they're doing with it and I haven't held one, but from the way I've looked at it, from from what I've seen and the production videos, it looks like that team that put this thing together put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into getting the industrial design right, which is a testament to Apple pushing the envelope on making things look as good as they work. And now Apple, uh, Microsoft hopefully is doing the same thing. Nicole, is this uh, this thing runs Lightroom, runs Windows um, 8 OS, and uh, Photoshop? You think this will find its way into your camera bag? No, I'm I'm so much an Apple person that it would take a lot for me to, you know. I mean, I would try it if somebody had one. I'd play around with it. But I also have a MacBook Air, and while I don't know yeah. how much the Surface costs, uh, do you guys do you know what the price point is on it? I do not. I do not. Maybe they haven't released it. But no. you know, I have a MacBook Air, which is not a cheap uh, computer at all. But 
it's so so light I you know my, I, I love my ear yeah i have an ipad as well so you know i use i kind of de- decide on which one i'm going to bring with me if i'm traveling like overseas i'll take the air with me it doesn't even feel like i'm taking anything you know like a, a computer with me at all and i can do everything i can that i can do on my um desktop but so, you know sometimes i it's not as powerful obviously uh but i i'm you know i'm so deep into apple and you know it's economical to just kind of stick with one operating system as well because you have all the same software for everything i wouldn't want to have to repurchase photoshop yeah yeah. because they don't let you do that with photoshop if you have lightroom you can go back and forth um with both windows and yeah i don't know When, when you talk about the air i remember mine had a had a power issue it wouldn't charge and i had to drop it off at apple to have them fix it which they did in like a day or whatever um but the song that was in my head as i drove home after dropping off my air at apple was robin sparks she sang that song how am i supposed to live with no air (laughs) (laughs) i just had to get that in there i love <laughs> anyway. You'll be doing magic tricks next. Hey, hey, man, I can sing. You know, I do all this stuff. <laughs> you know, I will say that one thing I love about the competition, you know, because I, I do a lot of everything I have is pretty much Apple or iPhone or iPad. I love it when, you know, Android or Microsoft or whoever creates something that I still would want, yeah. even if I wouldn't buy it, because that means that eventually. It will, you know, things bounce back and forth. You know, Apple will come out with something and then Microsoft and then Android. And it just kind of is this big circular thing or cyclical or whatever the word is yeah. that will, you know, I'll end up with something that will. I want to play devil's advocate here. And this might be heresy um, for many of the people listening to this show. But I'm going to put it out there anyway. Um, Microsoft has come out with this Surface, which is, you know, uh, one among many devices that are trying to compete with the iPad. Um, is it time for a company that is like Apple of 10, 15 years ago to come up and out Apple, Apple, you know, maybe it's not Microsoft, but is it time for another company to come up and say, Hey, Apple's now the Microsoft, the giant behemoth on the planet. They own everything. They have the mind share and market share, but we're, we're thinking different about things. You, you know, know? Like Google is that, Maybe no, because Google's gigantic as well, and I think, in my perception, not that I have a, my finger on the pulse of the nation or the world, but from my perception, it's it's like Godzilla versus Rodan, you know, with with Apple and and Google out there is giant companies with with uh, infinitely deep pockets. I'm talking about somebody that's smaller that comes in and says, "Hey, you know, we got funded. We're doing some cool stuff." You remember like BOS when BOS came around to uh, make an alternative operating system to Windows and the Mac OS. And, you know, they almost made it and then they failed. Or I don't know what happened to them. But I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Doug, do you think you think the Surface is a, is a kind of a signpost that other companies are getting the hint when it comes to industrial design and we're going to start seeing cool stuff from other companies? Well, uh, I think Microsoft's a special case. Um, they don't have a good track record. They're, they're notorious about being technology followers, not leaders. Uh, so we're going to have to see where they, you know, where they go with this. I think I'm skeptical of the processor speed. I, it's hard to imagine something that has that small a battery being able to run Photoshop full speed. So, uh, we'll have to see because, you know, Photoshop takes a lot. I'm like Nicole. I'm, I have a Mac Air like you also. Um, I have an iPad, and um, the Mac Air does a the new one I have has a does a marvelous job on Photoshop, but um, it's got a bigger battery than these these little guys are going to have, I think at least. But in terms of other companies, I mean, just remember how long it took Apple 
to get to where they are. You know, they 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 also they did it by creating a new category. They created the um, um, uh, the iPod, mm-hmm. and and it took years, decades before they really got to the point uh, that they even. There was even a hint that they could pull off what they've done recently. There's so much infrastructure. I think somebody could come along with a single product, but they'd have to, they'd really have to start in a new category because that's the way Apple did it. It just, yeah, it reminds me of when when Microsoft lent Apple, what was it, five hundred million dollars to to, <laughs> to save them from dying, and now some Apple employees are worth five hundred million dollars. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I wonder how much of Apple Microsoft still owns. Yeah. I know, I know. It's probably their most profitable uh, division right there. <laughs> All right, uh, Martin, what about you? I mean, are you uh, are you a fan of the Surface? And you you embrace new technologies willingly. Is this something that you might we might see in the background on your desk one day? Um, no. It's if if it was a year and a half ago, where before I switched to Mac, then I probably would have been really excited about this. Uh, and, and I still am uh, for the same reason that Nicole said. You know, it's all of this stuff comes around. Um, but I, I would, I would dearly love to see a really small form factor like like the iPad, but runs full Mac OS. But I think that you, you, like you're also saying, the the air is already there, and it's so compact and small and light. And then it's just. I just don't see me going back to Windows just for something like this or or even really sort of getting overly excited about it. Um, I think that Microsoft innovating, I mean, the fact that the, the format's already there um, and it's already successful from, from Apple and uh, even other companies now, but that, that's, even if you put that out, out of the way, the Surface, you remember that old um, video that was, out, that was going around where they showed you the, the tabletop where people were putting, uh, you'd put a USB stick, just yeah, stick it on I the top of that. the tabletop. Yeah. That was from Microsoft, and that Mm -hmm. would have been amazing Mm -hmm. if they did it five years or so ago when they started to put that video out. Um, And I think that that is the sort of thing that, you know, they've got the ideas, but they don't have the ability or the the freedom to actually go off and implement stuff like that. And so I think that they... They, you know, the reason, one of the main reasons that I switched to Apple, you know, for everything a a year and a half ago now was because I was just tired of Microsoft not really pushing the envelope anymore. Yeah. I'd, I'd up, upgraded my office suite, and it looked different, but I couldn't find really any useful additional features. Um, and, and I just thought to myself, you're losing it, guys. And I'd been a, a really sort of very pro-Microsoft user for some, what, probably 16, 16 years or so before that. But I just thought, okay, that's it. I've had enough. And that and I want the fact that I wanted 16-bit printing native in the OS just um, switched me over to to the uh, to the Apple side. And yeah. but of course, Apple had basically been been sucking me in with the iPods and iPads and things for years. And so I think a lot of people have been. I mean, for sure, like Doug says, the the iPod saved Apple. Um, it really that to me made me think. Oh, actually, you know what? Apple can make cool products. And it was the first time in years I'd seen them. I'd worked with them, but I, I really didn't appreciate them until the iPod. And then everything from there just sort of slowly sucked me in. And now I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think that, the, that this device will find an audience? I mean, because we have – I mean, there's Windows 8. It's running Windows 8, so that, that automatically separates it from 
mobile operating systems like iOS and Android, but iOS and Android are, I mean, they, they left the gate a long time ago and they got a long sprint ahead of them. And neither one of them, you know, Google nor the manufacturers of the, the Android devices or Apple are slowing down. I mean, we're, we're mm. expecting new iPads and iPhones and all this stuff. And Microsoft is kind of, from my standpoint, is kind of saying, hey, guys, look, I made something cool. You know, yeah. <laughs> can you come I, try I, it? I think that if I was still a Windows user, I'd be very excited about it. I think it's, it's going to be a great thing if you're in that world. Mm-hmm. But I'm no longer in that world. And, and it's, not, you know, it's not enough to pull me back. Yeah. Doug, are you, uh, you going to jump into this thing and play around with it? No. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> okay, I, you know, moving right I along think, then. <laughs> I, think, I, think, you know, I think in a couple of years we'll look back at this. I, I, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I think it's fairly safe given the history. We'll look back and say, you know, here's another flop. Uh, I mean, part of it is I also think that Windows is just way too large and clunky for a mobile mm. device for me. Uh, mm. You know, I don't I – don't, I mean, Martin mentioned having, you know, the full uh, OS X, Mac OS on a portable device. Uh, and there are certainly limitations of having just iOS on uh, an iPad. But, uh, gee, Windows has just gotten just too complicated for me. Yeah. No. No, I hear you. Yeah, I would be lost. I, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say there was a while back there when there was overlap between – because I was on Windows before, too. Um, when I could – I felt comfortable get, navigating both operating systems. But – I, if you put me in front of a Windows machine, I'm embarrassed to say that I would be a fish out of water. I wouldn't even know yeah, how to print. There's an advantage to that, which is now when family members call up and ask for tech support, and it's a Windows machine, I can you know beg beg ignorance. <laughs> yes. It works quite well. <laughs> Tell them to buy a Mac. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, hey, sorry to all you Windows users out there. We're just kidding around. No no hate mail, please. Um, and no telling me how much more superior Windows is than the Mac OS. Okay. Um, speaking of superior, Microsoft has also revealed some details of a new photo application that's coming to Windows 8. Um, and it's supposed to have um, a snazzy interface and organizing features and, and aggregating features. So it sounds like a, a kind of a Lightroom type experience, but for Windows 8. Like an aperture for Windows. Yeah, like aperture slash Lightroom for digital asset management application, but for Sounds, sounds like 8. reinventing the wheel to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that begs the question. Lightroom has a large lead in, in mind share when it comes to being the de facto digital asset management app of choice. Um, is Windows 8 going to be the also ran when it comes to putting the dev- putting software on your Windows app, Martin? What do you think? Um, what do you mean by also ran? Like, is it just going to be like, oh, you know, hey, we've got Lightroom and everyone's using Lightroom. Oh, okay. And there's this other thing over there. I, I think it'll be like iPhoto to me. And I, iPhoto, I, I use it like, I don't know, maybe 1%, even less of that of the time. I just, if I want to look at my images, I'll, I'll go to 99% of the time bridge, mm-hmm. half a percent of the time, sorry, bridge, Lightroom. <laughs> yeah. and, and half a percent of the time I'll go to bridge. And then probably the other half is split up between just the Finder and iPhoto. And I think that if Microsoft puts something in Windows 8, it'll probably be free. If it's not free, no one will buy it. Yeah. And if it, if it is free, people will maybe open it up. If they've, It'll be for consumers that, that buy a computer that don't really know what's available and they, they want to have a look at their images on their, that they've shot on the phone 
probably an Apple <laughs> um, <laughs> an iPhone, uh, and then they'll they'll just want something to um, you know to to view and sort out those images. But it might be good, and, and hopefully, you know, Microsoft are about to start really innovating again. But even it doesn't, with this set of features that we're looking at, it's all already available. So, it, like I say, it's probably more like just a reinventing the wheel. And, and if that's the case, it'll be more for consumers that don't know anything else is available. Well, it'll be interesting to watch. Like I said, the 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 surface is very interesting to look at. I mean, and if if people are listening to this, if you haven't watched their Microsoft's launch video for it, definitely watch it. It's very slick looking. Um, but it looks like an looks like an Apple commercial. It does look like an Apple oh. commercial. Like an Apple launch, you One, know. The, the water droplets and the the little beads dropping and stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, and the house music playing in the background. Sweet. It's almost like they're trying too hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what you do when it's you're better behind. Not, it's better than not trying at all, like sure. they've been yeah. doing for the last five years. But it's. I agree. Yeah. Well. All right, this last story, guys, I want to talk about is about uh, the Canon T4i. Um, so this is interesting. So this we, we came across this a day or so ago. And basically what's happening is some people are allergic to the Canon Rebel T4i thanks to a production error with the rubber manufacturer. That's the, the stuff, the, the people that make the... the um, or the process that, that makes the rubber around the side of the camera... It's a. It's comprised of a substance called zinc bis, or that's what's in there. It, it forms in the grips, um, and what happened was that when they created the the grips for this camera, there was much too much much too much of the zinc bis, and it's got a really long name that I can't pronounce the technical name. But uh, there was too much of that in there, and what happens is it will turn white and produce a powder that in some some circumstances can cause a skin reaction. So, of course, some people had this happen to them, and the big story is now people, humans, are allergic to the T4i. Now, Nicole, you, you, haven't, you, you don't have a T4i, do you? I keep forgetting no, which I, camera you wrote your book on. I don't, I, I don't have any Canon Rebels. I, my only ever Canon Rebel was a film camera that got stolen out of my geo tracker when i was 16 so oh, no. i don't have any i only i do 60d and 5d mark 2 5d mark 3 got Those it got it anyway so we we don't necessarily need to discuss this the way just want to it's more of like a public service announcement this is a per- public service <laughs> announcement if you notice that your canon rebel t4i uh looks like someone dusted it with uh flour then you probably <laughs> don't want to touch the grips take it back to canon or where you bought it from and tell them that you have too much zinc bis in you your know, Canon. I, <laughs> I do want to say, though, one unfortunate thing about cameras, and I've never really had this happen to me where I had to send a camera in you know, to get fixed after I immediately bought it, is I think they should just let you swap it out with a brand new one. Yep. Because I, I would hate it if, if all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's something wrong with your brand new 5D Mark III. You yeah. have to send it into Canon and wait three months for them to send it back to you fixed. Yeah. I don't know how long it actually takes, but that's just a you know, totally gross exaggeration, I'm sure. But... I'm sure there are cases when it could take a very long time. Yeah. I, I think that that's the bigger story here. We've got. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to find a pocket in time to send my 5D Mark III in to get the the tape stuck over oh, the top yeah. of the I bottom just, of the. See, I'm not even yeah. bothering because I don't want to well, deal with it, and it's not well, affecting. The, the, the reason that I'm going to do it is because the resale value might go down if it's not been taped, and that's right. and that's the only thing. It's not bothering me at all. I don't even know if the problem is happening, but I'm going to get it fixed because. 
I, I want to be able to sell that camera for for the maximum amount when the Mark D, the five D Mark IV or whatever comes out. So what's what's um, the fix for that though, Martin? I mean, not you know, no pun intended. But what's the fix for when you send your camera in to be repaired? That window of time that it's gone. Would it like in in an ideal world would the would the manufacturer ship you a light camera back to you and then you ship your camera back in that box and then swap it out when they send you your camera back or do they do a deal with borrow lenses or lensrentals.com and send you over a rental camera? What would you prefer have happen? What I'd prefer to happen is they just, like you just said, just send me a new camera. They screwed up on something that they, you know, that they... But permanently, all of, all of this, permanently yeah, send I, you a new camera not, like, and not I, fix I, yours and send yeah, it like, back. Right, like Nicole just said, sorry. It, it was like, I, I hate it when I've just, I've just spent $3,500 or, or like with, I think with the the 1D Mark IV or, or whatever it was, they, they, they'll, they'll ask thousands of dollars for a, a precision-built piece of equipment. And then within weeks of you taking, you know, taking possession of that and you're sitting there, you're, you're starting to really enjoy the camera, all of a sudden they, you get a, an email or, or the web now tells you first that you've got a, a faulty piece of equipment. And then you have to live with something that's been reopened you know, it's, it's like, it's not even my fault. If I'd have, like, I dropped my 5D Mark II in a river without a lens on, and it was full of silt. And so, like, that, I, I lived with the 5D Mark II that had been totally rebuilt, but it was my fault, and that I could live with. But when you buy something at this price, and they all, they tell you within a few weeks that it's faulty, and they've got to take it to pit, to pieces mm-hmm. and stick a bit of tape over something... Um, it's like it just it break it brings down the the sort of the overall user experience oh, and totally. and totally. and I think that that's the bigger story here. It's like we've got the five D. Um, I don't know what happened with the S one hundred, but the S one hundred has problems as well. And now we've got the the Rebel that's coming out that's got problems. It's like get a grip, guys. The, we we know that you're trying to get these things to market as quickly as possible, but they're obviously either cutting corners or doing something that is allowing these these issues to happen and i just i just want them to to get a grip and start to produce the quality that they're charging people for that's a that's a very appropriate saying for this particular segment martin get a grip, <laughs> get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to take a little exception to that though. i i disagree to some extent because i think you know if i buy a car and there's a recall i don't get a replacement car and i don't expect that um, you know, I used to, I used to own airplanes and, you know, there are constantly streams of things that have to be corrected in airplanes over the life of the airplane. Nobody comes along and offers to give me a new one. But, um, I, I think, I think that if, you know, if camera manufacturers thought that anytime there was something as trivial as this, and, and it's obviously not trivial for people who have the problem, but it's on a relatively small number of cameras. If the company had to replace cameras just because there was a problem with the rubber in the grips, uh, the cost of our cameras would go up quite a bit, I think. Yeah. You, yeah you, I, when I you agree. Have your, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. And let me say one, one more thing about that. Here's what I would do if I were Canon. I would have a very tightly scheduled replacement, not replacement, but repair program so that I could send it in um, they would give me a mailer, I'd send it in, and I'd get it back within three days. Uh, and ba- basically scheduling the workflow out over a period of many weeks and giving me a time slot, I think that would be a pretty effective way to do it. 
That would be a good idea. You know, because like, like, let's say you're, you have to do something like a seatbelt fix on your car. Let's say it's recalled for a seatbelt fix. You take it to the dealer. They fix it either that day or the next day. And you probably have a rental car while you're in the process of having it fixed. You know, obviously, I have backup cameras. But I just bought, you know, I, I, I want my, my Mark III is now my main camera. I don't want to send it in and not have it for a while, several weeks. I could spend $500 and be the highest, you know, CPS, the Canon Professional Service thing where, yeah, they give you a replacement and they give a really quick turnaround time, you know, which is, I think, their, um, that's their solution to, well, you want it done quickly, you know, you can spend more money and join these services or whatever to get this, any, any repair done quickly. But, yeah, if they had if they had something that said, well, if you send it in on August 1st, we'll get it back to you by the end of the week. You know, in, or, in Japan, that's that's how they do it in Japan. They are they do have a very quick turnaround here. Um, but I I think you know going back to to Doug's point, I agree. I mean, and, and I've I've worked in in sort of not not hardware but software production, and I know that the, it would increase the the whole cost of the camera if we were just to expect them to replace it when there was a problem. But what I think they should do is even if they re- repurposed all of the parts, I mean, they could effectively, I don't know if this would cause a big stir as well, but if, if they find a problem like that, if it's within the first three months or something like that, while the camera is still effectively new, then the policy should be, okay, we'll just send you a new one and take your old one away. But then what they do with that old one would be up to them. You know, they could, if, if it really is still new, um, just use all of the parts again, build a new camera, stick a new serial number on it and, and send it out again. But that might as well, you know, cause as much problems, uh, public relations problems as, as, the, as just not doing that. But yeah. I think that there are certainly going to be parts in there, if it's within a certain time, that are still effectively new and could be repurposed. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. I know that we don't want to push the price up. Um, but I mean, the biggest point for me there was just take a take a little bit more time over the production and just make sure that you've got better checks in place. The Japanese have always been incredibly meticulous on the you know, how they they put these production lines together. It's it, it's become a standard for most companies around the world, and yet it seems these days as though they're they're putting profit like a lot of places, a, a lot of countries, and a lot of companies are putting profit over quality and, and they really need to sort of take a step back to, to the, the way they used to do things a few years ago and really just make sure that everything is fully tested before it leaves the building. So it just goes back and, to put the, put the customer first, right? Right, right. Yeah. And I don't think that they're doing that at the moment. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, I want to give a nod to <clears throat> one of our sponsors. Uh, the first sponsor that we have on the, this episode of TWIP is Carbonite. Carbonite Online Backup. We are brought to you by them. Basically, they pose the question or posit the question, are your computer files backed up right now? Are they backed up and automatically and continually safe and safe and kept safely off-site away from computer crashes, viruses, fire, theft, etc.? Basically, to be really, really protected, you need online cloud backup from Carbonite. So with Carbonite, your files are automatically and continually backed up in the background. So you're working, 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 and whenever you make changes or on a preset schedule, your your, uh, changed files are moved up into the cloud safely away from danger. They're off-site, away from anything that could happen you know, like a, like a crash or fire or something, you know, or theft. 
And then after something like that happens, you can easily get back to that pre-save state. You can get your backup files back quickly. Um, and if you need to get into your vault, so your backed up files, you can access those files privately from any computer or even on your smartphone, your iPad, etc., with a free application. And you get unlimited backup from Carbonite for just $59 a year. It's unlimited. So get your entire hard drive in the cloud and backed up for just 59 bucks a year. You can start a free trial today at Carbonite.com. Just use the offer code TWIP, T-W-I-P, and you'll get two bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com and get two free bonus months with the offer code TWIP. All right. Uh, right now, I want to insert that interview I talked about at the beginning with Trey Radcliffe. It's on discovering the art of photography. Trey and I caught up just yesterday, I believe it was, um, as we record this, about his new move to New Zealand. We had a meta discussion, in Trey's words, about art versus technology and how to market yourself in the digital age. And we also talk about his new live photography training class, Discovering the Art of photography. It's a new webinar series designed to give you a solid foundation in photography. So give that interview a listen right now. I'm lucky enough to have Mr. Globetrotting Trey Radcliffe here with me. Finally got to nail him down. He's been on planes, trains, and automobiles, heading over to New Zealand, shooting. You never know where on earth, Trey Radcliffe is stuck, but now he's stuck in New Zealand for a few minutes to chat with me about what he's been up to and some new projects that he has going on. First of all, Trey, welcome. It is so good to see you. How are you doing? Uh, great. Thank you, Fred. It's good to see you, too. Always happy to see you. Um, I don't know if I am uh, all that that you just built me up to be, but <laughs> but I am I am here in uh, in New Zealand. Okay. What okay, a lot of people have heard rumors of Trey Radcliffe moving to New Zealand, and you know, is he is he leaving Austin? You know, is why why New Zealand, and are you really there for good? Yes, it's a it's a permanent move. So I moved here with my wife and three kids. It's final. Uh, here I'll show you out the window. Here, watch. I'm going to come at at the camera. <laughs> At camera technology, spinning Through around the magic camera. of the webcam, we get to see and oh, look at that! So here we go. This is this is Queenstown, New Zealand, um, and we move into our final house in about you know ten days or so. In the meantime, we're uh, we're staying at this place called the Commonage Villas, which has, as you can see, the best view of Queenstown in the world. And so uh, it's that kind of cheating. I just beautiful. Look at that. Yeah, I just set up my my camera kind of out on the balcony and and uh, see down down there. I don't know if you can see on the lake. Kind of zoom. You might have to zoom in with your eyes, but there's a there's an old uh, uh, steamer ship that goes back and forth across the lake. And wow, man, it's uh, that is that is insane. I mean, that's. Uh... <laughs> That kind of looks like a, I don't know, it reminds me of a scene out of a movie, like I should see some hobbits or something running around there. No, the, the only hobbits are my three kids that run around. <laughs> you imported the hobbits? <laughs> yeah, but they also, just like real hobbits, they also have a second breakfast. They're always hungry, these kids. <laughs> well, they're, they are calorie-consuming machines. But, but Trey, why, why New Zealand? Why not Madagascar? Why not London? Why not, you know, the Ukraine? Why New Zealand? Oh, well, you know, 
um, I'm always taking photos. I love taking photos. I can't, I can't stop. And I like taking all kinds of photos, but primarily I think I'm drawn to landscapes. So of the landscape-centric places I've been in the world, I think that New Zealand is just, you know, among the top, especially down here in the South Island. I'm just so close to amazing, amazing landscapes. I like mountains. And then uh, beyond the photography side, I thought it'd be a nice family adventure. Um, it's a nice, safe place to raise kids. Um, the schools are good. Uh, people are very laid back. Uh, nobody takes themselves too seriously. Um, and I dig that. Um, just kind of a cool, uh, relaxed lifestyle. And, and it's... Um, it's nice, you know. I'm not anti-U.S. at all. Yeah. Um, but just wanted to do something different for me and my family. That's great. I mean, and it, and it's great to be able to do that, right? To just to because of uh, and uh, you and I are both huge proponents of the, of course, the internet and marketing and just sort of the 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 business model where you don't necessarily have to be tied to a, t a terrestrial location to operate your business. You can, as evidenced by your move, take off and relocate your family to New Zealand and be just fine, right? Uh, yeah, well, thanks, you know, to, to you and, and your audience and everybody on the Internet. Um, we've kind of put together this business model where I basically give away 99.9% uh, .9 of stuff, and then we we – charge for 0.1% of it. And I don't really like oversell it or over promote it or anything, but when we have just so many people coming to the blog and kind of enjoying the free stuff, occasionally they see little things like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Maybe I like this little ebook, or maybe I like uh, this video, you know, this 11 hour video that shows how to do such and such. And then people will, will buy that. And, and luckily it's so many people that a very small percentage um, means that I, I can live anywhere and I just need a good internet connection, yep. which I like, frankly, anyway, because I, I use the internet uh, to get inspired and find new ideas and meet new people. And I feel like I use the internet pretty much the same way everybody else does. I, I just love it. I love it. Yeah, the, the business model you described reminds me of what's, I think it was, um, uh, someone over at Pro, Pro Blogger, I think, uh, I forget who it was, but they said, they described that business model as the bikini business model, where you only, you only hold back a very small percentage of the overall product and, and give away everything else, and, but people generally still want to see what's under the, the little bit that you're hiding, right? Yeah, well, that's a bit um, of a lascivious way to think about it. <laughs> well, that's but, <laughs> how I think, Trey. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> lascivious. Yeah, I love that. I got to write that down to Google that. <laughs> All right. Let's, I thought so you what? might call it special Frederick Van Vanilla or Banana Slang uh, <laughs> business method. No, no, I like lascivious. I'm going to take that. I'm going to use that in the next okay. episode of Twip. Um, <laughs> Okay, so, so speaking of business models, you're always launching something new. You've got, I mean, people can go to stuckincustoms.com to see all the things that you have going on, as well as your work, obviously. But the, you're always launching something new. You've got um, a series of apps out there. You've got, like you mentioned, training courses, a free HDR course that people can, can get up to speed on how to do HDR that many people charge for things that, that are less comprehensive than that course. But... The latest thing that you're doing is uh, a 
online class. And I'm trying to get my brain around it. It's a webinar, but it's a class, and it's multiple day long. So take me through it. It's called Discovering the Art of Photography. So what, what is it, and, and what problem are you solving with this? Right. So this is a, a new class, and people can register now for it. It's four days. It starts at the very end of July. Mm -hmm. so it's four nights in a row. And it's built uh, specifically kind of for beginners and intermediate photographers. Um, my other courses have been more advanced, quite, quite technical. And those have always done well. But I still get a lot of very kind of fundamental questions uh, about cameras and how to organize your photos, mm -hmm. uh, how I organize my photos, um, how I then commonly just use Lightroom. What are the most important things you need to know in Lightroom? Um, how do I post-process? What are my plugins that I like to use? Um, and so much, of, in, at least in my estimation, so much of taking the photo happens after you take the photo. Um, it's, it's very difficult nowadays to know all of this other activity that happens on the computer afterwards. So we do spend time out shooting in the field, and I do landscape shots and people shots, and, and everyone kind of goes around with me like that. They get to watch this, this video of me doing this. Um, and then uh, kind of the meat of it is we start out like in class one very basic stuff, right? I don't want to, um, you know assume that people know all of the, the basic stuff. So we, we do spend maybe the first two classes on, on the basics, and then we move into the more intermediate and advanced topics uh, right away. And so that's the thing, is you come in and it's, uh, it's four days, it's from the comfort of your own home, we all connect over the internet together, and uh, you're part of this live um, uh, premiere of this four class event. And then at the end of watching this video that uh, we all kind of watch together for the, for the very first time, uh, then we have an extended live Q&A period where people can ask me anything. Cool. They might ask me to expound further upon something that I just did in Lightroom, and then I'll pull it up and I'll edit photos live and, and all of this sort of thing. So it's, it's incredibly comprehensive and kind of gets back to the root of what so many questions have been coming to me about. I, uh, I think I made the... Um, well, I don't know if it was a mistake. I, didn't, I don't have any grand plan for anything. But people seem to be very interested in all the advanced stuff, like, oh, what's so, – because, you know, you know, photographers, they're, some are very hardcore, yeah. and they've been doing this a long time, and they just want to learn one particular advanced technique. And so I started out everything extremely advanced. With the uh, HDR stuff, you mean? Yeah, with HDR and post-processing. Mm -hmm. um, and all those did great. Uh, but now I realize that most of the questions I get um, are so many people are just getting cameras and they, they don't really feel at one with their camera. They're still intimidated by it, and that's, that's an awful thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So you're, you're, you're going back to the future in a lot of ways, right? So you're going to go fill in the fundamental building blocks to being a good photographer and, and sort of the basic understanding of the stuff that you need to know, and then... Moving on from that, people can logically transition into the, the, the more detailed stuff? Yes, and really, you know, I should make it clear that in a lot of ways, my style of teaching doesn't appeal to all kinds of people because I do make a particular uh, focus on the artistic side and finding your own artistic path through photography. 
uh, very quickly you do try to dispense with the technical stuff, right? Mm -hmm. We get you over this hump of, of learning how to use your camera to take a photo. But to me, the most interesting part about photography is making something uh, beautiful and artistic and meaningful to you. Yes. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think as you know, uh, photography tends to attract uh, very left-brained, um, clever people, right? And what they do is they over-obsess on, on like the optics or, you know, they might fully diagram the shot they're going to take, they, they really, like it's a, a crime scene investigation for the crime. You know, CSI you know, photography, they, right? Yeah, yeah and then they, then they take the photo, and it just, it's probably perfectly technically executed, but it just falls apart artistically. And, and this, is, this is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. But I think that, you know, what's counterintuitive about photography and art is that sometimes you need to go into the, ambiguous zone, into the zone that's not clear in order to make something that's artistic and, and interesting. If you, like if you think, for example, about some of your favorite songs that really get you going, that uh, are meaningful to you, that you've listened to for years, a lot of times the structure of these songs is uh, unknown. You know, sometimes you don't even really know what the lyrics are. You might find out many years later, like, oh, that's what they were saying in that part of the song. You, yeah. you don't even... How can you, so how can you love something so artistic but have really no clue about what's happening structurally underneath it? And so this is very interesting to me. And I think this can also happen in your photography, that if you can just dispense with overthinking the structural clarity and the scientific uh, particulars of your photo, if you can release into the ambiguous, into the artistic side, then you can finally create something that's very meaningful to you and maybe to other people. Right, yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I, also, I also think along those same lines, so you're going down the path of, you know, let go, Luke, use the force, you know, and <laughs> take the photo, Luke, you know, that kind of thing. But there's also the piece of um, understanding, your understanding intrinsically light and the properties of light and, and what's going to happen when it comes into your camera. You don't have to obsess over it and, and get down to the photonic level of the speed of light and the interaction of the, that particle on the photo cell and all this stuff. But you still want to understand f-stops and shutter speeds and ISO and, and what, what that means in order for you to get to that point where you can release the targeting computer and, and let the art take over, right? Yes, and, and uh, this idea about f-stops and ISO and shutter speed being confusing to people. I, I see many people thousands and thousands of people who have already done beginner or intermediate courses that still find f-stop to be a little bit elusive and ISO to be a little confusing. Mm -hmm. they, all, they always have to stop and think about it. I think this is incredibly um, unfortunate. And I know people that, there's plenty of people out there that know this stuff like the back of their hand and they really look down their noses at these people. Right. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the way a lot of people learn about ISO and f-stop and shutter speed is is wrong. I think that teachers often teach it the wrong way because sometimes these teachers are, are extremely intelligent, right? And they're able to come up with a very complex model in their head. And they might do this thing where they draw out a triangle, right? And then they 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 have different things on the points and they're explaining everything with this diagram on a whiteboard or whatever. 
But the problem is, is that while this makes perfect sense to that teacher and probably all other teachers, students are continually bamboozled by this thing because what people don't understand is that so much of human communication is just trying to understand the model with which this other person is talking. Right. And so if they have this really complex system for understanding something, just getting your head around that system of thinking is almost as hard as trying to understand what they're actually trying to interpret in the first place. So it's so then what's what's the solution complex. then for for those folks? What's the solution? Should it be because com computers and optics and cameras and Lytro and all this stuff things are advancing at this breakneck pace? Are we getting to a point where it doesn't even matter anymore, you know, that, that, that stuff. I know it still matters to a large degree compositionally and all that stuff, but, you know, just the, the fundamentals of what's happening inside the camera. Should beginning photographers just say, you know what, I'm going to let the computer handle that. I'm going to concentrate on my style of photography. Well, there's, there's two, two ways to answer that. One is, um, you know, I have a, a Nikon a D800, which I really like, mm -hmm. and... I shoot pretty much everything there with aperture priority. But I also have an NEX7. And frankly, I often leave that just on the automatic mode. And mm -hmm. it makes really good choices, you know? And a lot of times with the NEX7, I'm doing more casual stuff, maybe my family or, or things that are happening around me. And, you know, I move from inside to outside, and I'm in all different kinds of lighting conditions. And it makes the guess, and it does it right, like 95% of the time. So I can just focus on the subject and composition and not worry about that stuff. Yes, I promise you, I'm clever enough to set that stuff in manual every time <laughs> if I wanted to. But I don't need to prove myself to the camera. Yeah. You know, what, am I, yeah. what am I proving to the camera that I can, could, I can tell you what to do? You don't have to choose yourself. Yeah. So um, in some ways, I think that there is a trajectory where these cameras are getting so smart that they make the same decision as a professional photographer 98% of the time. Uh, but having said all that, I still do, uh, the way I like to teach this stuff is by locking yourself down into aperture priority, keeping your aperture locked down, and then, of course, when you're in aperture priority, you don't have to worry about the shutter speed. So that's, for all practical purposes, locked down too. Then yeah. the only thing you really need to worry about is the ISO. And just, I encourage playing with it. Like, let's say you're in a, a dark situation and you, you take a photo, right, in aperture priority mode and it's a little too dark and you've already locked down your aperture and your, your shutter speed is whatever it is. Well, if it's too dark, I say, well, just try doubling your ISO. Well, if it's a little brighter and less blurry, then you're going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Double it again. Maybe it went from 200 to 400 to 800. If it's still a little blurry, try going to 1600, and just kind of experience that. What, what's how? Do you see how when you increase this one thing, how your your photo changes? And if you're moving too many levers at once, it's confusing. You know, the human brain can't really figure out like, okay, if I'm constantly moving my shutter speed and my ISO and my f-stop, and this happens, and then I adjust two out of three, and then this other. It's almost impossible, unless you're Rain Man and have a ton of experience, to really grok that. Yeah. So I suggest locking down two of the things and just playing with the third until, you've, until you feel that. Yeah. And then lock down two of those and then move another one.
I think this is the way to get to know your camera. That's 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 really good advice, and I hear a lot of uh, you know older school photographers, or even you know people that are just jumping in, saying you know going the purest route, saying hey, uh, you know, with, like you said, looking down their nose and saying, hey, I only shoot on manual. I like to control everything my camera's doing. I'm in, I'm in 100% manual exposure mode, and I don't use autofocus. <laughs> you know? So, and then my, yeah. res my response to that is, why did you buy that D3 then? You know, I, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, well, you know, in some ways, I understand the psychological motivations why people do that. It's in some ways, it's a very thinly veiled insult, right? And they, they could, because they take great pride in their internal actuarial tables and how they're able to know how these three variables interact in every possible lighting situation in the world. Right. And um, maybe they really want people to learn this the way they do. But it really does take years and years and years of experience in order to understand the way these things interact with one another. Um, and pretty much, you know, nowadays that computer is really, really smart. So it why is. not? And getting smarter, right? Yeah. Well, Trey, how do you, how do you find yourself as a photographer? Because early on when you started, I know you you told me a while back that, you know. Generally speaking, you were relatively new to the world of photography. Like you haven't been shooting for thirty, forty years, right? Um, right. But early on in your career, you discovered that you loved landscapes and HDR and all that. Now I contrast that with a lot of photographers I talk to that claim to be generalists. You know, like yeah, I don't know what I like to shoot. Some days I like landscapes. Some days I like shooting portraits. Some days it's street photography. Some days it's macro. You know. You are laser focused on landscapes, and you know not so much HDR all the time, but just landscapes, and then you do, you post process in different ways. How do you get to that point where you know, okay, this is the thing I should be shooting? Well, I, I do recommend that everyone start out as a generalist, and I think that once you're a generalist, you're always more or less a generalist, but you find that you have a penchant for one particular subgenre. I have, uh, I, and I still do, take all kinds of photos. Um, you know, and I'm, like, I'm extremely interested in macro photography, even though I hardly do any of it. But I'm, you know, macro curious. I want to get all these lenses and, you know, freeze bugs and get water bottles full of glycerin or whatever the hell people do. I think that looks great. <laughs> it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that you can't help but fall in love with one particular subgenre. If you do enough of it, you think, oh, you know, I really like the way mountains and water play together. Or you'd be like, oh, you know, I'm really into using a lot of lights to light skin in a certain way. Uh, whatever you really uh, enjoy, you'll find it. Um, and I think that's a, that's a fun process to go through. And But generally, I'll get meta on you in, for a moment here. Um, I I've sometimes struggled even with the word uh, photographer, and I don't necessarily like categorizing anything. I know a lot of left-brain photographers love subcategorizing everything. Um, it's a very Western thing to do, mm -hmm. very Socratic reductionist way to do things. But I think what's actually happening, the general trajectory of image capture is one where the word photographer kind of falls away because a photographer generally, if you were to define it, would be somebody that um, uh, you know uses a, a camera 
to capture light at a particular moment and it goes onto the sensor and then uh, and that is sort of the, the photography process. Yeah. But I think the direction that everything is going is that you use a device to capture light. You capture some part of the fabric of the reality around us. And as we have this mass proliferation of devices, all of which can capture some segment of the fabric of the reality around us, um, it's very hard to say what is a photographer and what isn't because um, you are really out there collecting a massive amount of the data around you. And then you're massaging this data, right? There's just, there's electrons and bits, and you're just kind of moving this stuff around like a conductor. And then you create this symphony, and then you release it to the world, usually over the web. Um, it seems like it's so far removed from what a photographer does. Uh, I don't even know if there's a word for it. It's, it's basically you're just capturing your own view of the fabric of reality around us using a device. And, I mean, you know as well as I do how these devices are changing um, every few months, there's just something yeah. kind of mind-blowing happening. Yeah, I think I think maybe you maybe you coined a new phrase uh, or a new name, Trey. Maybe it's metographer. <laughs> you're <laughs> you're capturing parts of the metaverse, you know, as you go along from your particular point of view. Now, you know, on looking back to discovering the art of photography, on in that course, if I, you know, say I'm a person that just signed up for it. It's done. You know, I've gone through all four classes. I'm happy. You know, what what's different about what I know about photography from before I, t I took it? Do I have do I have a stronger bedrock understanding of how to post process images? And do I know how to use my my DSLR better? What what am I going to take away from it after the course is over? You'll come out of it with a better understanding of your camera. You'll feel more at one with your camera. You'll feel at ease with the absolute truth that you don't have to know everything about your camera in order to take a good photo. This is something that everyone's afraid of. Like they'll never understand all the interstices of all of these dials and these menus and these labyrinthal UI systems that Apple definitely did not design. <laughs> you know, there's just this intimidation factor. And so that's one big step that you'll get over for the class. Secondly, like you'll have sort of a personal mission. You'll feel, um, you know, very inspired and ready to go out um, on a particular path of your own. You'll have some vision of the path of your own art that it might take through the years. And you'll know that, you know, you're not just out here just to take photos, but you want to create something really, really special for yourself. And this is a nice, this is a nice uh, insight that you'll come to in your own way through the class. That's great. That's great. So one last tip. I want to, I want to let you go soon. I know you want to get out there and, and get on that mountain out there that we just saw in the beginning. But um, you have built a, a hugely, you've built a Death Star in terms of your influence in the photography universe, <laughs> you know. In a in a relatively short time, you you are at the top of the heap in a lot of ways, and when it turn, when it comes to reach and reach in our particular genre of photographers, you know the advanced amateur, the amateurs, the, and semi pros and pros. 
how do you, if you were to give some advice to some of the people who are watching this about how they can not so much replicate your, your successes, but a, a vector that they can take in order to move in that direction so that they're doing the right things online rather than spreading the peanut butter too thin. What would, you, what would be your, your advice for that? Well, thank you for that. I don't know if I agree with your assessment. because, in, But in so many ways, I feel like I'm just a guy that loves to take photos. I just love it so much. I love post-processing photos. It's a very, you know, photography is a very solitary sport. And, you know, I'm alone so much. It's unbelievable how, how uh, lonely you can become as a photographer. And then so what happens is, you know, I make these little creations, and then I decide to, to share them online. And that's kind of how I connect with the world and how I, how I feel um, you know, connected to my fellow artists, my fellow photographer, uh, people like you, people in your audience, you know, so many nice, wonderful people that, that have nice thoughts of their own. And this really, this kind of fulfills the other half of me. Um, so there certainly is no grand plan or grand scheme or any of this. Uh, but I do find that the more that I, I share and the more that I uh, create and share, the easier everything becomes. Um, there's a there's a um, uh, there's an element of vulnerability uh, where you just have to completely open yourself up, and of course you end up with lots of people that dislike you and all this nonsense. Right. Uh, once you get past that, you know, uh, psychologically, which doesn't take too much time, but people get through that in their own way. But this having being completely vulnerable and open and creative and artistic online, um, it's actually a wonderful way to live because. You know, even though people really generally only see uh, some of the edge of the bell curve type behavior, you end up having all these wonderful people come into your life. Um, people that, it's sort of the opposite of a, where you filter the bad people out. The good people automatically get filtered in. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of help you on your own personal quest in one way or the other because it just makes sense to them. So I think this is the overall lesson is just to create and be open and keep putting your stuff out there, and eventually the Internet will discover you. Yeah, that's great. That's a perfect note to end on. Trey, thanks again for, for taking time out of your afternoon. What time is it? It's, uh, it's almost 6 o'clock here in California, 6 p.m. What time is it in New, New Zealand? It's almost 1 p.m. It's only uh, five hours earlier than California. Even though it feels like it's on the other side of the world, it's just, just five hours different, not that bad. That's great. That's great. So, yeah, the rest of your day to get out there and take that lens cap off. So, <laughs> yes. thanks, thanks a lot, Trey. I appreciate it. And I will uh, link over to your course, Discovering the Art of Photography, in the YouTube notes for this episode or for this, this video and also on the This Week in Photo blog post where this video is going to live and uh, people can click through and uh, sign up. I'll be in there. I'm going to be watching. I'll try not to heckle too much while I'm in there, but I'm going to be one of your students come when, you, uh, oh, cool. when you start this class. Great. Hey, I'll tell you one more thing about it that people might like to know. Sure. One is that uh, if you bring a friend, you can bring a friend and it's, in, it's much, much cheaper uh, if you bring a friend. Um, you also get a chance to win two free cameras, two awesome cameras if you do the bring a friend thing. And last, if you're not sure about it or whatever, um, if you just go ahead and sign up, um, we give, uh, like, if you 
don't like it or you think, oh, this is kind of lame or I didn't really learn anything, we always give 100% of your money back. We don't even ask why. Just let us know. It very rarely happens, by the way. But anyway, there's really no, no risk, so you don't have to worry about it. We have human people that answer support at stuckincustoms.com, really, really nice people around here. And we just really want you to be happy. And we see this as a very, very long life, you know. And uh, so really, in that sense, if you're feeling low on funds or feels too risky, don't, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to, to make you feel secure. That's great. Uh, that is great. And I would, you know, I, I know you didn't say this, but I would encourage folks to head over to stuckincustoms.com and look at the other resources that you have there. Um, there's a ton of, like you were saying, there's a ton of, free stuff there that people can just dive in and get their brain around all these different techniques and post-processing and on and on and on of, of things that they can do without dropping a dime other than the time it takes to get over there. And you have a lot of uh, paid resources over there as well that people, if they want to take things a level deeper, they can drop a couple bucks and get in there and, uh, and, and learn a lot of new things really quickly. So thanks, thanks a lot for putting that together, Trent. Sure. My pleasure. All right, uh, I'm going to leave it right there. Like I said, I'm going to let you get out and enjoy uh, Middle Earth over there, <laughs> and we'll, we'll see you again soon, Trey. Thanks a lot. Cool. Okay, bye, Fred. All right, bye-bye. Okay, you can learn more about Mr. Trey Radcliffe at his website slash blog at stuckincustoms.com. All right, folks, it is time for our listener Q&A segment. This is where our guests answer questions that have come in online via our various online presences. This first one is from Rhett. Uh, Nicole, I'm going to... Th- no, actually, you know what, Martin, I'm going to throw this one to you because it's about shipping gear. Uh, it's a photographer that's shipping gear uh, for a workshop, and he wants some advice on that. You want to read this one and give it an answer? Sure. So this is from listener called Rhett, or I guess. Um, I'm planning a workshop in Canada, do you have any advice on shipping gear ahead of time to avoid the hassle of having to lug it through the airport? My gear includes a Canon 1D Mark IV, a 500mm f4 lens. Obviously, I could just carry it on, but it sure would be nice to have uh, to not have to worry about it. And, yeah, I, I actually do this very same thing when I'm travelling up to Hokkaido, um, and that is I, I often just put my... 600 millimeter f4 lens into a into the case and send it on uh but there i don't know if this is going to be the same in the u.s or canada but in japan when i called to ask about this there was a few stipulations and one was that it does have to go into the hard case that canon ship the lens to you in it you, when you buy these super telephoto lenses they come in a a very sturdy case with like a a molded uh, inside that really hugs the lens. So even if the case gets bashed around a little bit, it's not going to really adversely affect it. And so that in Japan, one stipulation is that it's in that lens. And the other is is that if it's over a certain amount, and I'm sure this is going to vary between Japan and the US, so I'm not even going to mention an amount, but if if the quality of the item is over a certain amount, you have to pay, It literally it's just a few dollars, uh, but it, you have to pay a certain amount of insurance so that if something does happen to it, you're covered. If you just, like, stick a stamp on it and throw it in the mailbox, you might as well say goodbye to it. Yeah. You, you really you have to make sure that you're conforming to all of the, the stipulations that the, the company that you're going to ship it with has. And 
make sure that, that that they will cover you for the price of the of the gear if if anything does happen to it. And you might have to pay a small premium for insurance, but I I do that. Um, I've never shipped internationally, but I, I like I say domestically, I I have shipped things like that. I do it every year, uh, and I've never had a problem. So really, just check up with the the company that you're going to be working with to get it shipped up there, and you should be fine. Perfect, excellent answer. Thanks, Martin. All right, question, question number two is from listener Kyle, what was it, Wills? I'm going to throw this one to you, Nicole. You want to take this one? Sure. Listener Kyle Wills is 18 and just out of high school. His goal in life is to photograph people. He's interested in art school and is wondering if it is a necessity or is, is it a luxury? Does he need a Bachelor of Fine Arts to shoot for big companies and magazines? And one of his fears is the cost of art school and being able to live after possibly getting himself into hundreds of thousands worth of debt. Um, well, first of all, you don't need a degree in photography to be a successful photographer. I know very few people that are, uh, photographers who actually have degrees in photography. I'm one of them. Um, most of the people I I know either don't have a degree or have a degree in something else. So you don't need a degree. When you get, you know, a a business, they're going to look at your portfolio before they ask what your resume or I'm sorry, what your your colleges, they might ask for work experience yeah. or something like that over, you know, but they, they want to know that the photos of the quality of your work is going to be good. Obviously I think it's a good idea to go to college. I, I opted for the military <laughs> and, and didn't go to college. So I got my own kind of version of schooling, I guess. Um, but I think if I were to actually go to college specifically to be a photographer, I'd probably go to business school, uh, because you know, there's, a lot that, you know, I think photographers are afraid of the business side of things. I, you know, I don't like it with my business is very unusual. So I don't have to deal with a lot of similar things that other like, you know, wedding and, um, people who actually have clients deal with, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really a personal decision. I think, um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Frederick? Um, I, I agree. I I think what, what you were saying boils down to is show me the work, right? So when you, when you walk in, they're not going to say, you know, show me your credentials and how many letters you have behind your name. And then I'll consider hiring you for this to shoot this corporate job. You know, it's more of show me your portfolio online, you know, and that will get you in the door. If your work stands out and you have a vision and execution that's beyond anyone else or the other people they're considering, then you got the job. Who cares how you got those skills? You got them, you know, now, now go in there and use them. So it's, well, uh, you know, one of the great things, you know, I mean, I learned photography. Well, I learned a little bit in high school, a little bit here and there, but everything else I've either just, I've learned by just absorbing information, mostly from the internet. Mm-hmm. And there is, there are so many resources out there, uh, books, videos, workshops, you take community college, just on a few classes here and there for photography. It's, it's not like learning to be a engineer or a chemist or something that, you know, does require those skills that, yeah, maybe you could learn some of that stuff online, but it's not, it's a little different, you know? (laughs) So there's so many things out there that you can do that are going to be a lot less expensive and you could do them on the side, uh, as far as photography is concerned. And also I think a lot of it comes from within, it comes from your passion and your vision. And, you know, if, if it's something that you really, really, really want, then it'll happen whether you become a nuclear scientist or, you know, a photographer, you're still going to be a photographer if you're, if you really want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, and I, I applaud him for asking this cause it's, it's pertinent for a lot of people cause you can, 
you know, and we, we have a lot of educators come on the show. You know, you guys are educators as well, right? And people that, that share their knowledge with the, with the community to help them get up to speed on the, on particular genres of photography. And there's a lot you can do if you have the will and the way to move forward. There's a lot you can do just by, you know, you know, just going into your local library. If you, you know, you, you could learn a lot about photography just from sitting on your computer or going into an internet cafe and searching for different things to get you started. So, yeah, so yeah, definitely. That was a great answer to that question, Nicole. All right. Question number three, uh, Doug, I'm going to read this one for you. It's kind of long. This one just came in from, uh, one of my Facebook friends, Chris Wilson, um, I liked his photo. Then he responded. He says, I have a question for you. I told the folks that printed that program this is the program that I saw the photo on that he posted in his stream. He said, uh, he said, told the folks that printed that program, they could use the photo. It wasn't established how he thought it would just be used for Facebook. He didn't find out until that day that they'd printed 10,000 programs with his photo on it, and they used another photo of his in the program without his permission. He said he's going to charge them the going rate for what photo quote estimates the price should be for the usage in that region, but the image is all over the web by now. Granted, they gave him credit on the photos. He's not sure what to do. Doug, what, what does Chris Wilson do in this situation? Do, do, do you know where Chris lives and what the the region is where the, he granted permission? Uh, I do not. While you're talking, okay. I can try to find it. Um, because certainly, you know, those of us, Nicole and I have some experience here in the U.S. and Martin may have some experience in Japan. Uh, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, um, I'm hoping that he had a written license. And, uh, you know, you don't need to go to an attorney. You can find license agreements online that allow you to uh, license the use to someone. And the license is usually very specific, what that photo was licensed for. Um, obviously, they if there's not a written agreement, this is a very difficult thing to deal with. The fact that they use extra photos is a challenge. The other thing is, the reason I asked what country he was in. He's, he's in this uh, country. He's in Chicago. He is. Okay. So something we've talked about on the show before, too, is whether or not he registered his image with the copyright office before this happened. Uh, because if so, then he might be entitled to, you know, uh, uh, collect some punitive uh, damages and so forth. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there's no sense here about what the actual value is and whether it's worth his trouble to go after these people or not. Um, th that's the real question here is, yeah, they did something wrong. That seems clear. But is it worth pursuing that? It's really hard to answer. Um, I, I don't know what to say other than that, other than, you know, do it in writing. Uh, register your images before, you know, as soon as you publish them or before you publish them. You can do both. And um, then you have to decide what's worth pursuing and what's not pursuing. Now, Nicole, if this were you, what would what would you do in this situation? You said you gave someone one of your photos. Say this photo that you took when you were when you were just back home, one that's printing now, and you uh, you know you you said, hey, you can use this on your Facebook page if you want, and then turn around and you find out that they'd used it on a brochure and printed ten thousand of them. What would be your next steps? Oh, it depends on, it depends on where the photo is, you know, because I'm lately I've been, um, when I first started, I'm a stock photographer. I do a lot of, you know, for people who don't really know my work, I have a lot of images on, on iStockphoto.com, which is micro stock. So, uh, when I first started doing that, almost every photo I 
I photographed that was good, I would put that in my portfolio. And now I'm kind of drawing a line between what I consider my stock photos and what I consider my, I guess, my personal or my more high-end fine art photographs. Mm -hmm. So I'm very particular with how those images get used. So if let's say if it were one of those images, well, okay, let's say if it were one of my stock photos, um, I, I, first of all, I wouldn't give it away in with, I would, if somebody, like I get people asking me on Flickr, Hey, can I, I found this photo. Can I use it? I immediately say, well, that image is available to be licensed over on iStock and I give them a link. And so that's how that, that's how I do it with that. So I, you know, that would never even come up. I would never say, yes, of course, let's use it carte blanche. Um, but for a fine art photo, um, I would, you know, make sure I I knew exactly how they were going to use it. And then if they ended up going beyond that, I would invoice them. <laughs> yeah. I've never yeah. this. So this is all just kind of conjecture on what I would do. I would invoice them on, on you know, if I'd be very cordial about it. I'd send them a, an email and say, hey, you know, explain the situation. And I wouldn't just send them an invoice and be a jerk about it. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, we'd come up with saying this is how much I should be paid. And then if they say no, then I call my lawyer because I copyright all of my photographs and I would have a legal way of actually that's, getting that's funny you say that that's almost verbatim what I responded to him as <laughs> that's it's perfect yeah invoice them for what you think you should have been paid in the beginning and then take it from there yeah, yeah. yep very cool all right uh let's move on we're almost to the picks of the week before we do that I want to give a nod out to our second sponsor it's freshbooks.com freshbooks is the uh, basically they're the company that makes it easy to do the one thing that we as creatives have a hard time doing, and that's getting paid. We know how to do the work, but we have a hard time asking for the money. So if you're in business for yourself, getting paid is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that you can do because it allows you to keep working. But it takes a lot of time to create invoices. It's a lot of paperwork. And then you got to follow up with these people that don't pay on time and on and on and on and on. So since 2004, FreshBooks has been around. They're the online invoicing app that saves you time by doing all this stuff for you and they get you paid faster. So using the service, you can create invoices and email them to your clients. The clients can then view the invoices online and then pay you right there with a credit card done. You're paid. You can turn timesheets instantly into invoices so you can keep track of things that you're doing for a particular client directly within FreshBooks and then build them, you know, convert that timesheet into an invoice and boom, it's done. And your accountant can take all the data that FreshBooks is generating and work with it directly. So it's a, it's a really powerful service. I use it in my day-to-day billings and it's been honestly, you know, it, it has saved or it has made me thousands of dollars <laughs> that I'm not even kidding that would have just, Oh, I forgot about that client, you know, all that kind of stuff. It has with automated billings and things that I would have just said, you know, what? forget about that. It just, it's a hound dog on people just to make sure that things are on the up and up. You get paid when you, when you they say they're going to pay you. You can even set things in there like late fees. So if they say, if when you sign a contract with someone, you say, um, you know, the bill is this much. And after 30 days, if you're 30 days late, it goes up to this much. You can program, program all that in there automatically and it just handles everything for you. So you can sign up now to FreshBooks and you'll get 30 days of unlimited use. You get all the features, client staff, everything you want. No limits. 
just sign up at freshbooks.com and please just tell them that you heard about it on TWIP just to let them know that their advertising is working. Again, if you sign up right now, you get 30 days of unlimited use, everything, all the features, no restrictions, uh, no limits. Just sign up at freshbooks.com. All right, it is time for one of my favorite pieces of the show. It's called the listener. Or no, that's not the listener. It's called for the pick of the week segment. <laughs> I hate the listener Q&A. No. <laughs> it's the pick of the week segment. This is where you guys pick something. Uh, it can be anything as long as it is somehow related to photography. Doug K., I'm going to throw it to you first. What's your pick of the week? Okay, this is something that is only for people who are particularly concerned about uh, protecting the rights of their images, or they're very geeky, or both. So I include Nicole in this one because I know she uses <laughs> right. this. Yep. It's called Digimark, and Digimark's been around for a long, long time. What they do is they embed an invisible watermark into the digital elements of an image. It's invisible. Uh, it's really cool because if you take an image and you, if you crop the image, the watermark is still there. You can make all oh, sorts right. of transformations, but it's literally in sort of the DNA of the image. And uh, I've experimented. I haven't been able to get rid of it unless I cro- crop really small or I really go in and make major, major changes to an image in Photoshop. So uh, you pay yearly for this service. And you pay $49 a year for the basic service. You pay $99 a year if you want uh, also to have them do a search of the web for images that include your watermarks. The first one, you get 1,000 images a year. The second one, you get 2,000 images a year. And you embed these watermarks using Photoshop. It's actually built into Photoshop by default. You just have to have your particular key number in there and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well... I was always curious about it. I'd known about it for many years, but never used it until I came across a video by RC Concepcion at um, Kelby Training, who showed how to automate it from Lightroom. So actually, I can sit there on, on any of my Lightroom exports. I can now add a feature that says automatically uh, run a little script, go over to Photoshop, embed the uh, watermark in the JPEGs, and that's it. So once I discovered that, uh, I decided to sign up for the service, and I've been using it now for a few months. Um, it's really cool, and I think people who are who are either geeky or are who really want to have a a really solid watermark that's invisible in their images should go check it out. Very cool. It's and you should you should you should you should ask Nicole about that real quick. Nicole, she's you, using you're using that. I, I use it. Yes, I use it uh, for yeah, like photos that I post to Google Plus and things like that. Um, because I. I stopped using a visible watermark, you know, like putting a Nicole Z or copyright Nicole S. Young. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to – but I still wanted to have a way, you know, to still f- find those photos if someone does use them in a way that they're not supposed to, which is most of the photos that I post unless they're stock images. Um, so, yeah, I haven't found any violations yet. So it's uh, – you know, but it's it kind of makes me feel safe. That he's and and I also do copyright my images, so you know all the photos that I copyright for the most part. For the most part, I should say have that digital watermark in it. So, okay, all right. And Martin, you had a question about this for for these guys, right? Yeah, I um I wanted to I used this years ago and I stopped because I basically found out at the time that the search engine that they have for 
you know, for actually looking, you, you, you said that it, it goes off and it searches the web for images with your copyright embedded in them um, or your, you know, your watermark embedded in them. But I wanted to know if, if either of you guys know if they've made that proactive now because years ago you used to have to tell it where to look and it was basically a losing battle. When and, I, you know, it, I'm it, logged in right now because, you know, we're talking about it. So I was like, well, I'll log in and check. And it's, mm. it shows me, and it hasn't been a whole lot because I have, you know, don't put it on every single photo. Um, but mm. you know, I haven't had all my photos. I should say it says like five of my images have been found and it shows the most recent three. So I can kind of get a glimpse of it and then I can go in and search. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I haven't honestly looked at the site enough. Uh, it, it would be nice if they have, maybe they do something that would like send me an email alert anytime they find something in use. And I don't know if, if they don't do that, they should. Yeah. <laughs> but, is this that, like that is was, it is the is the tracking like Tinai? You guys heard of the service Tinai, right? I don't think it's right? as good. I don't think it's as good because well, let me do. I I can find out actually. I could probably just do a a right click. Um, well, actually, you know, I don't think any. I I I don't put it on my stock photos because unless I just want to see where they're used because my stock photos are so many people can download them. I don't know who downloads them, you yeah, know, yeah. not to say, Hey, go illegally use my stock photos, but they're, you know, not as it's the just, but you're not, not, you're not, you're not using Digimark to, to digitally watermark the images you put on iStock, right? No, I, I, I tried it for a couple of them and I was like, Oh, this is just kind of pointless. Cause I'm going to run out of, you can only license, I mean, sorry, you can only watermark so many photos depending on how much you pay. Ah, gotcha. I don't want to run out. <laughs> so I just do it on the photos that, you know, have a little bit more, I guess, value to me, either personally or, you know, actual value down the road, um, which tends to be more my personal work that, you know, I'm going to sell as prints or license at a higher rate. Yeah. It sounds like something Chris Wilson from question number three should look into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Doug. Uh, Martin, what's your, what's your pick? Yeah, I I was struggling this week um, because a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at at the moment is like a thousand dollars plus. So I uh, I didn't want to give a a really expensive pick, but I also I haven't really been picking up any any little apps or anything like that recently. So I was thinking that I one of the things that's in the the you know the front of my mind a lot at the moment is that I I've done a couple of photo walks this year and. We just completed one in Tokyo for the Google Plus first anniversary. And I just had a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I, I basically I met a lot of people that I know know from the web and from Google Plus that we, you know, we, cont- we, we chat online, but I never really met them in person. Um, and also it sort of takes you out of your comfort zone. I mean, I'm, I'm not a street photographer in any way. Uh, and I'm still not really that good at it, but I really enjoy getting out and just sh- walking along, shooting with like-minded people. And I think that the the pick that I wanted to give is to if just do photo walks. You know, if if you hear of one in your area, uh, or you know, or even just actively take take a look and search for them, even if it's not necessarily in the um, the you know in the genre or you know the type of photographer that you really enjoy. I'm sure you'll enjoy actually being out with like-minded people and just just having fun and doing that stuff. And you learn a lot. You develop a, a slightly different eye than you maybe not usually have, and hopefully make some friends at the same time. So yeah. do photo walks. Very cool. I, I have to agree with that. All right, Nicole, what is your pick of the week? My pick is the it's for Canon photographers 
and it's the Canon 40 millimeter pancake lens. Oh, it's that a, little one, the little uh, lens cap lens. Yeah, you know, I saw it when it was starting. You know, they were announcing it or rumors about it, and it came out, and I was like, it's only two hundred dollars, uh, and that's really inexpensive uh, for a lens of this quality. Um, it's. I was waiting to see what people had to say about it. You know, I wanted to get. I wanted to hear good things because I wanted to buy it, and I didn't want to buy something that was just another. Um, the can like let's say the Canon 50 mil 1.8. It's a great nifty 50, but it's not something I would like want to use for my work photography. Let's say um, it is. I, so I went uh, to Nebraska, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and I have uh, four nieces and nephews. I ran around with this. This is pretty much the only lens I used when I was photographing my family. Really. And, it, uh, yeah, I think I threw the fourteen my fourteen millimeter on like once, but then See, I see immediately... that says a lot because you're a stock photographer and and it's not like you can shoot and have stuff be soft. I mean, just no, yeah. even if it's just family photos, I mean, you're, well, were, you... but they were for stock too. I kind of do a little bit of both. My um, brother and his sister in law are cool, so they just signed a nice release for me, and I'm always like trying to get really good photos, and it's like a win win, you know? They get good photos, I get stuff. It's like, oh, Nicole's coming! Everybody sign your yeah. releases. <laughs> <laughs> I did end up with, it. And, you know, these my, they are not kids that are going to stand there for me patiently and wait for me to, to get a really good photograph there they have about a five to ten second attention span when it comes to the camera in their face so i have to be quick and sometimes just try and get the, the shot you know with them moving and i am extremely satisfied with the sharpness and the quality um i mean i haven't i haven't dug into the the images like you know the pixel level yet um but i've i actually have some if you were if you go to my google plus uh, page at plusnicole.com. Uh, it's um, if you kind of scroll through, I have some collages that I made. A lot of you know the, the people pictures you'll see the, of the kids. That's my Smith. nieces and nephews, and those are all with the forty millimeter. Yeah, and it's I love it. I'm really comfortable in that focal length. I think, and uh, part of it maybe because I had the X, I have the X100, but now I have this forty millimeter, and I don't even want to use my X100. Really? So that that you kept that forty mil on for the majority of the shots you were doing when you were there? Well, not for my landscape stuff. I have a different. I have a twenty four tilt shift that I use for all my landscape stuff, oh. but for all of the handheld people photographs, yep. it's. It's a beautiful lens, and I'm actually finding it's also a great lens to do like t- uh, shooting down on my food when mm-hmm. I'm photographs. Uh, but another, it's it's so small too. Like I have a a think tank shapeshifter bag, and it has that bag works where it's like the the whole front part zips all the way down like a normal backpack would, and it folds in half like a clamshell. And then there are little pouches for all of not like it's not like a normal camera bag where you know, all of the there's like compartments. These are like little pouches that are connected to the bag, the inside of the bag. Mm-hmm. And I usually would put the bad thing about that bag is that you can't put a camera with a lens on it. You have to put the body alone. Oh the body cap on it but i found that with this 40 millimeter pancake lens it's so small that it fits in there without having <laughs> to take it off <laughs> you know that's awesome it, you can you can tell a true photographer when we buy camera gear that <laughs> to to go in the bag right <laughs> it's not the bag for the camera gear it's the camera gear for the bag you know? <laughs> so i seriously if anyone is looking for just a walk around lens this you know they don't care about zooms and they want just something that's just real simple it is a beautiful little lens, you know. It'd be even it even be good on a um, like a sixty D or Rebel. You're gonna lose the, some of the wide because it's gonna go to what like maybe sixty or sixty five. I'm not sure what the exact difference in focal length is gonna be, but I love it. It's two hundred dollars, you know. Get that yeah. instead of a fifty if you want to get a <laughs> lens that's small. So. I love it. I love it. Well, cool. Thank you. I'm jealous because uh, <laughs> I can't get that. But uh, thanks for sharing that. That's the Canon forty millimeter pancake lens. 
Um, and finally, me. I have. I'm going with two picks, um, and they're at opposite ends of the spectrum, basically in terms of price. The first one is from a company called StickyAlbums.com. StickyAlbums.com. Um, and essentially, what they are is like if you are, say, a wedding shooter, or you shoot models, or whatever, you know, anything where you have clients and you need to show them images, you can use the Sticky Album service to essentially give them an app of their images that lives online, right? So you upload the images, give them access to it, or even just send them a URL. They click on it and they can, it'll, it'll make an icon on their, de- on their, on their iPhone. You know, you can make, make any URL basically an icon, but it does it automatically programmatically. Um, and then when they click on that, it just basically, it's in an app like experience. All the code is on the server. So it's, it's delivering these images to the album, the sticky album that's on the phone blazingly fast and it just works. You know, I'm playing with it right now and it just, it, it's a fast service that is, I think the, the way that I would use it, I just started playing with it for, you know, like two weeks ago. But the way that I would use it is I went out and shot a model, photographed a model, let's be clear, and, um, <laughs> and yeah, with my camera. And uh, you know, afterwards, I could send her my selects um, in, for her and for, you know, for her to share around in just a link. And all she has to do is click on it with her smartphone or iPad or whatever, and boom, and she's in this sort of empty image only experience and it just works. So it's a, it's a server side service and they gave us a, a offer code for the TWIP listeners. So it's regularly yearly 189 bucks. Um, but with the offer code T W I P TWIP, of course we use that for everything. you get $40 off their pro service, sticky albums pro. And the cool thing about the pro is I think you have unlimited everything and you can put your own branding on it. The lower levels, it, it says powered by sticky albums, but with the, uh, with the uh, pro version, you get your logo on there and all that, which is kind of important for branding and all that, but check it out. It's at stickyalbums.com. All right, and my second yeah, look at all these notes in the show notes from you guys. <laughs> People are putting graffiti around my second pick here, just so you guys know. Uh my second pick is the Wacom Cintiq twenty four HD. It's a and Martin's writing ha ha ha. It's a uh you guys know what the Wacom tablets are, but this is a Wacom Wac- tablet. Wacom. Wacom. Sorry. I'm from Chicago. Come on, it's Wacom. <laughs> No, it's Wacom. Call him. Wacom. It's Wacom, like Wacom all. Wacom. It's actually It's actually Wacom. It's a Japanese word. I used to say Wacom. I don't know. Okay, let me just spell it. W a c o m. Now we can get to that whole the whole bokeh versus boca argument. Remember? So anyway, we started on that one. It's the W a c o m Cintiq 24 HD, and I saw the video for this thing yesterday, and I'm like. All right, I gotta have that. I gotta sell something. You know, I'm looking. I'm looking at limbs that I don't use that much. Maybe because <laughs> it's beautiful. It basically, it's a it's a touch screen. I mean, it's a tablet, but it's a touch screen as well that you can draw on, pinch, zoom, twirl, all that stuff on an articulated arm stand that sits next to your computer or in front of your computer. Um, it's just beautiful. It's uh, it's beautiful. I don't know. I mean, from the from the looks of the video, it looks pretty responsive. But you never know with these things until you play with them. But it is uh, it's amazing. I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. And it's cheap too. It's only thirty seven hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Very cheap. 
It's really, to... For you, Martin, come on. You you drop oh, yeah. that on a camera body every two months. <laughs> no, I, I had to sell like an arm and a leg to get the 1DX. Oh, did you? Oh. <laughs> well, no, actually, I, the, the 1DX, I, I just got a really good deal on my old 1D Mark IV, but I still had to drop a couple of thousand dollars for it. So it's it, it all hurts. Yeah, it does. It does. Nicole, you wrote in the show notes, I got to tell on you, you wrote meh. <laughs> <laughs> I would, you know, I, I wouldn't spend the money on one. I'm very, I, I love Wacom's. I have the Intuos Four medium size one. Yeah, I have a, a small one that I carry and travel around with. Um, I absolutely love the product. I, I don't think I would ever get a Cintiq. They're so expensive, they and I think ergonomically, I really like to sit up and stare at my screen ahead of me. But really? you know, but if but if they the, sent you one to test, oh, would, would you play with it? I would use it, and I would I would love it. Um, but I'm not I'm not going to spend the money on that. It's just that's pricey. It's almost four thousand dollars for a, for a monitor. I know. How many pancake lenses could you buy with that? <laughs> well, the thing the thing is with the Cintiq is really it's it's a pro. It's a pro app. Not app. It's a you know. It's basically for pro, for professional imaging experts and things. It's, I mean, I'm not saying that you guys aren't pros in any way, but you know, it's really for people that are into. They're doing design and and a lot of graphic work, illustration, illustration. Yeah. right? And, and it's yeah. and it's usually the the company that's buying them. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, for, the for, amount for, of retouching I do. I mean, I'm I'm an expert with my mouse or just my tablet or my. Yeah. Uh, or the the touchpad on my my laptop, but I I can't see like Nicole. I I want to, I want this on my desk because the geek in me is lusting after it. <laughs> but I probably would. It would just probably sit there and I'd revert back to the mouse. I bet. You know? yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. All right. Um, it's good stuff though. It w- yeah, they do. How do you pronounce the name again? Is it Wacom Wacom or it's, you know? I- the only reason I say it's Wacom is because one time I, I, I either had to call them or I called them to find out how to pronounce it. I can't remember. But the first thing you hear is, welcome to Wacom Industries. So, like, that's it. <laughs> Very good. Look at that. <laughs> in, in the U.S. I mean, that's, that's pretty close. It's, it's certainly it's, it's close enough to not have to worry about it. But in Japan, <laughs> they, say, they say Wacom. Well, Wacom. It's Wacom. 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 Yeah. Okay. But, yeah, but, but they, they, say, they say Nikon, too. What do they know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's only a Japanese like, word. Not, yeah, sure they not, that yeah, company. not like it's a Japanese company. Yeah. <laughs> they say yeah, Canon. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, Canon. they don't. They say Canon. Canon. It, it's, it's a K. If you was to write it in, in alphabet, it, it's actually... Uh, it, well, in fact, it's actually K-I-Y-A-N-O-N. Oh. Uh, but, but they pronounce it Canon, not Canon. Uh, it's Canon. So, but... I don't think we need to push that too far. Because, I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. That's another show entirely. We should do a whole show on on uh, how <laughs> Americans butcher names. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody, I mean, it's, especially yeah. the the Japanese names that have seeped out around the world. But it's, you know, I think it, they all get localized. It's yeah. even though they, they may have a, a Japanese origin. It's, I mean, and if and if you you heard the way the Japanese pronounce McDonald's, then you probably would never worry about how it's, you pronounce they Japanese words. Ronaldo, right? Exactly. Macudonaldo. Macudonaldo. Like, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, totally. All right. And on that note, we will close this show. Um, Doug K, where can people go to find out more about you and, and see your stuff? Bloggerhythms, right? Bloggerhythms is the blog. DougK.com is the portfolio or find me on Google+. Very cool. And Mr. Martin Bailey, where can people go when you're to find you when you're not hanging out in Macudonaldo? <laughs> <laughs> Getting fat on Big Mac. 
and the big mac too and and fries oishio uh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah everything is linked at martinbaileyphotography.com but i, I still am uh, i'm trying to build a list of people with interest for the pixels to pigment uh, tour that we're doing in august and through september and october so uh take a look for that as well uh, but yeah everything's at the top page at martinbaileyphotography.com all right gozaimashita. and nicole young where can people go to find out more about you uh i'm really just kind of hanging out on google plus mostly these days i poke my head into my blog every once in a while but you can find me on google plus just by going to plusnicole.com that'll take you to my profile page I love that. See, that is all the cool kids are doing the, the URL for their Google Plus page. That's a hint for Google. Hey, you know, maybe make some short URLs over there. Oh, yeah. I want to slash Nicole after that. I don't want that crazy string of letters. But. I know. Come mm. on, guys. Mm. All right. Uh, well, that's it. Thanks, guys. And to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please pres- pres- support our show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. We read each in every one of them. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a good way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.